You've seen the best. You've seen the worst. Now here's the rest of both worlds. I'm Gayfesh, and I have breathed the same air as Will Wheaton on two occasions. And I'm Ari, and I think Riker is giving me feelings. And today, we will be discussing the Star Trek The Next Generation episodes The Naked Now and Code of Honor. So Captain Kirk went to space. (laughs) How do you feel about that? (laughs) I've been excited to talk about it. I'm kind of mixed on that one. First off, he's not the first Star Trek actor to go to space. I I must say, uh, Mae Jemison was the first uh, African-American woman in space, and then she got a walk-on role on Star Trek The Next Generation. So she is the first Trek actor to go to space. Awesome. That's cool. And I think James Doohan, who played Scotty in the original series, uh, had his ashes spread in space. So Hmm. really, if we want to get technical with it, Shatner's like the third. But that really grinds his gears. I think it's cool that the actor who played Kirk went to space, but I don't really like how it happened because it was just like, it was Bezos's company, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's not a Star Trek way to go to space. Mm-hmm. Oh, here's here's a rich guy who is bringing his pals up to almost space. Like, they're not even- Other in rich a, guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're not even, it's not even an, an orbital entry into space. They're basically just like, oh, we're at like the top of the atmosphere. And then we get like five minutes of weightlessness and then we just go back down to Earth. Is that all it is? Yeah, it's actually kind of underwhelming. Now, if I were given the opportunity, I'd do it in a heartbeat. Oh, for sure. <laughs> My whole life I've wanted to go to space. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not trying to sour grapes this, but as far as a space travel goes, it's like walking down to the end of your driveway. Um <laughs> <laughs> That's a good description. (laughs) Space travel right now is so expensive and uses so much fuel to to do it. If we're going to treat it as a tourism thing, it really is only ever going to be accessible to rich people like Bezos and their buddies. That's not what Star Trek is about. So I don't really see it as an inspiring, oh, we're doing this. Like, no, Jeff Bezos is doing this. We get to watch. Yeah. Watch a rich guy play with his money. They think we enjoy that, but we don't really. Well, most of us don't. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Now, I think George Takei had said something snarky about uh, Shatner going to space. Um, I didn't really read it. I I don't like Takei much these days. He's kind of like a, a boomer grandpa who's like had some good progressive takes but then it's just like okay i know i understand I, know. I understand you and shatner hate each other so you were probably gonna say something about it but eh, maybe give this one a rest i know i know i there was a point back when george takei got super popular in social media back in the before times like in 2007 ish that i didn't even follow him on social media because everybody else followed him on social media and shared all his stuff and it was like yep i saw that because 32 other people also shared it (laughs) you know so i didn't bother to actually follow him but i mean i get what you're saying because he is kind of like the boomer grandpa that said a few things right but now sometimes i look at the things he says and i'm like what you know Yeah. Well, let's get into the episode. So the episode that we're going to start with today is The Naked Now, written by J. Michael Bingham. And the story is by him and John D.F. Black. This episode is directed by Paul Lynch. The crew of the Enterprise is subjected to an exotic illness that drives them to unusual manic behavior akin to a type of alcoholic intoxication. So um, the very first thing that I have on my notes are what do the star dates mean? Are they consistent throughout the show? Is there like a rhyme and reason to them? I've always kind of wondered this even when I was watching like random things throughout my childhood. 
do they actually use them in a way throughout the series that it makes sense? They actually do a little bit. Uh, in Star Trek, the original series, they just kind of would get larger as the episodes went without rhyme or reason. But starting with The Next Generation, they basically did a thing where it was like every year was like a thousand dates. Uh, okay. You'll notice this episode is 41209.2. The 41 will tell you, okay, that is TNG season one. A TNG season seven episode will be 47, whatever. And okay. uh, Deep Space Nine and Voyager carry that on forward. The idea, I think, I've read a lot about it, and it really just is time dilation in space travel will have our own uh, measurement. Don't worry about it. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was just curious because I realized as I was like settling down to watch the episode, I was like, well, they always say the star date at the beginning. I wonder if they really like coordinate to something or if it's just a random number they throw out there. They generally progress uh, a little bit throughout the season. So lower uh, numbers mean it's earlier in the season. There are a couple episodes where the star dates are mismatched. I think there's a couple episodes this season where one very clearly takes place uh, after the other, but has an earlier star date. I see. Okay. You'll, you'll run into things like that. It's best not to worry about it. <laughs> not to worry about it. Okay. I was just curious. I watch everything with the subtitles on. So my favorite subtitle of this episode was in parentheses party noises right at the beginning <laughs> and i thought party noises was a funny um because to me they don't sound like party noises so the episode starts and they're they are they've come across the ship next to a dying star correct correct and then they hail the ship or whatnot and this woman is like hitting on them through the through the phone or whatever uh -huh. And then suddenly you hear this noise that sounds like somebody opened the airlock, right? And then it cuts to the theme song. Right. So, but my favorite moment is she said something like, she said, I hope you have pretty boys. And then it cuts to Worf and he has this look on his face like, I'm a pretty boy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the first thing that I noticed in this episode is that they had leftover frost spray from Encounter at Farpoint that they used... <laughs> For uh, for for the uh, the set on the other ship, that had to be what it was. It was the exact same stuff. It was like this, like white flocking stuff, or I don't know what they call it. Um, I, I've seen like some behind the scenes stuff with like other Star Trek shows where they've used right. the same stuff, and I'm like, oh, they just had it left over for uh, from <laughs> from Encounter at Far Points, so they just uh, sprayed the entire room with it here. Because the fact that they just died by being frozen or whatever was so random and had nothing to do with anything really that's actually so i didn't tell you i was doing this but i also watched the naked time which was the original series episode that this episode is based on and right. the reason that they have everyone frozen there is because that's how they found everyone in the naked time oh yeah i haven't seen that one in a while i watched it a couple years ago for shirtless sulu because i had seen the meme a bunch and so i went back and watched that episode but mm -hmm. i had forgotten that yeah. yeah, and I think in that one, I think it was a station on the planet that was breaking up, and, like, somebody had blown up the airlock, and so everything froze because it was, like, a frozen planet. Right. Uh, but they just wanted to call back to that, but it was on a starship, and I think it was just somebody had messed with environmental controls and set everything to freezing. Mm. So that would be why it was frozen. Interesting. My initial, like, response to the episode was definitely, like... 
oh, they wanted to give something to the next or the original series people to get them to buy in. They had um, Bones on the first episode and then they had this one as the second episode. To me, it felt very much like catering to fan service. There is certainly a lot of that, but also the naked time in the original series was like the first bit of character development we ever saw from Spock. Because that's the episode where he breaks down crying because he was never able to tell his mother he loved her. Oh, that is. That's right. And everyone latched onto Spock because of that. Everyone's like, oh my god, I, I, I get him now. And they're like, well, this was such a good episode for character development for Spock. And, uh, you know, some of the others, but everyone remembers Spock. Because they're like, let's right. get that out, out of the way right now. Let's do it for this cast so that you learn their deep desires. What makes them tick? Let's just uh, fast track that. Yeah, and I and I didn't dislike it. I just thought to me, and fan service works. I am a, the kind of person that like really buys into fan service. You've sat next to me in many a movie, and if they flash one of my favorite characters on screen for two seconds, I freak out. You know, <laughs> so I'm very much a person that understands fan service. So I didn't really think it was a bad thing. I just felt like it was interesting that it felt like maybe they were trying to get um, older people who had watched the original series to kind of buy into the new series. I kind of feel like uh, all Marvel has to do to make you like the movie is have Carol show up for two seconds. Two seconds. Two seconds. (laughs) That's all I need. It doesn't even have to be her. In WandaVision, it was her voice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yes, I've loved Carol for so long now that I'm just so excited she's finally in the MCU or whatever. But yes. Oh, man. The next generation could throw Carol in there and I'd be very excited. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe she could punch a couple spaceships. I mean. <laughs> um. So who's number two or number six or number 13? How come he's always referred to as number one? Well, he's the first officer. So he's number one. So is that why it's like a nickname for first officer? Yeah. Um, okay. As far as the um, the rank structure, I believe that Data is the second officer, and then I'm not sure where Command goes after that. Okay, but so the so number one is kind of just a nickname, though, because he's yes. the first officer. Okay, and it's also a reference to the original pilot of Star Trek, um, where Pike's first officer was uh, a woman who was just called Number One. Mm. Um, we never actually got her name; he just called her Number One. And uh, I think she was actually supposed to be kind of like the Spock, even though they had Spock back then. Right. She she was supposed to be the logical, rational one. And then uh, the uh, the studio was like, don't make a woman be the, the first officer. So they got rid of that character and then rolled her character traits into Spock. Interesting. Okay. Interesting. I was really excited about this episode. I don't know why. I liked this one. It was kind of cheesy, but I really liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked the tie-in to the first one. I got real excited when they said Captain Kirk's name. I was just like, yeah, yay, Captain Kirk. They said his name, you know. <laughs> That's actually something that kind of bugs me. Not that they would reference Kirk, but that this incident is recorded. So Starfleet should now know about polywater intoxication so that's something that they should filter for in the transporter buffer. You would think so, yeah, because it'd be a known, you know, effect or whatever. Yeah, especially because it's so devastating because it can destroy entire ships because everyone goes crazy. You would think, let's check for that, especially because it is created during uh, massive gravitational fluxes in the 
the naked time, it was the collapse of a planet. In this episode, it was the collapse of a star. It feels like it shouldn't have taken them as long as it did for them to connect it back to that. And it was only because uh, Riker was randomly reading old star date logs or whatever. He was reading up old Enterprise logs from previous ships named Enterprise. Yeah. I don't know. I that the, the intro and the story and the whole thing about it is a little bit cheesy, but the little bit of cheesiness made me kind of buy into it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I like when shows don't take themselves too seriously. Star like, Trek has never taken itself seriously. I mean, yeah. it has sometimes, but like people who are like, no, Star Trek is serious. It's like, no, I'm sorry. There are times where, where Yar just boinks an android. Yeah, there are times, like this episode, <laughs> where <laughs> she's like, oh, you're fully functioning, huh? Oh, my favorite moment of that is when he goes back up to the de- the bridge, and, he's, and he says, well, you're fully functioning, Data, Picard does, and he goes, fully functioning, sir, or something like that. It's, no, he's like, like oh, oh, Data, I God. see you're still functioning fully, sir. Yes. Yeah, that's what I was, I was like, oh my God, Data. Um. <laughs> uh, Brent Spiner is an amazing comedic actor, and especially my favorite part in that scene is, like, Picard walks away, and then Data just goes to, like, lean on, like, the back of a chair, except he's nowhere near the back of a chair, and he just falls over. he just falls over! I know! It was so good! And I thought, I wonder if that was written that way, or if it's something that Brent Spiner came up with on his own. (laughs) Well, I mean, there's a ton of carpet to, like, catch his fall, too. Mm-hmm. I still don't know why there's so much carpet on the Enterprise. Um, well, actually, I can think of one just from a practical perspective. Uh, you don't pick up as many footsteps uh, when That's you're recording. True. The boom doesn't. And actually, uh, here's a really funny thing. Uh, in shots where you can't see their feet, they aren't wearing shoes. They're wearing fuzzy slippers. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny to imagine. <laughs> you, you you almost never catch it. They're pretty good, but there is like an episode in like season six where you can see someone wearing pink slippers as they're walking away. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> um, I think this episode taught me that Tasha Yar is bi because there was a moment where I felt like she was coming on to Deanna. Like when she's in her room trying on her quote unquote clothes that were just pieces of fabric. <laughs> I I could definitely buy a buy Tasha Yar. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's what I took from it was that he, she kind of had feelings for Deanna. Like also, I don't know. I kind of got the feeling she just caught feelings for um, sex because in general, Data Data <laughs> is not the first person she brought to her quarters. I guarantee you that. Like you saw her just walking through the hallway and just like snogging a random dude. Yeah, that's so, true. Some rando. Yeah. <laughs> how many people did she rack up before she got the android? True. And he was the one that was finally like, all right, that's fine. Whatever. <laughs> well, he was probably the first one who knew how to make a woman orgasm. Yeah. <laughs> I thought her Superman curl really made that outfit, though. Yes, it's great. It's just that like, little- I don't know what's with that curl, but it's cute. I don't know the whole thing. I wasn't expecting so much. The curl of, is part of, of the outfit, but what really makes the outfit is the underboob. It really is. <laughs> like, you can't help but stare at it. And I'm a bisexual person, and I couldn't stop staring at her stomach and her underboob. So I don't know how any other, you know, young person who was watching this man, I would have had a huge sexual awakening with Tasha Yar. Also, I'm looking at the picture right now because it is the picture that Memory Alpha uses for the episode. I'm looking at it, too, yeah. 
she has really nice toned abs too. She's just a really fit person. She's yeah, she's got that nice kind of fit body. Yeah, I know. And that's why they chose to make her, you know, mostly naked, which I'm not <laughs> complaining about. I, I mean, it, it was kind of the equivalent of the shirtless Sulu from the other episode, you know. But yes, that episode or that outfit was something. And I was like, you know what? I like it, though. There's something about it that just works. You know, <laughs> there is an episode of Star Trek Lower Decks that just came out. Uh, that references these episodes. Um, it was like a holodeck simulation, but they were like testing the crew through di- different scenarios, and all the scenarios were like, okay, these are episodes from previous shows that they just throw mm-hmm. them in. And one of them was just the crew has been infected with a polywater intoxication, and so the the person who's in the simulation, she just has to run through the ship as everyone is naked and banging. <laughs> the internet went absolutely apeshit over it like there were so many people like i can't believe that this is what star trek has become and everyone's like this is what star trek always was yeah star trek was always about sex the naked time goes all the way i mean that goes all the way back to like the first season of the original series mm-hmm. you know like so anybody who doesn't understand that i mean and, and i don't know it's weird to me the people that even th- think that so was Jordy the first one that got intoxicated yes he caught the woman who fell out of the shower. Oh, that's right. So, and that was so weird. So everybody's naked except for the woman in the shower. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, what? Like, that doesn't make any sense. And I think it's because they were like overheating, right? So mm-hmm. they they took off their clothes and she thought to get in the shower but not take off her clothes. I don't know. That didn't make any sense to me. Um, But I also thought she fell out of a turbo lift, not out of a shower. Yeah, no, it was a shower, which is also a little weird because uh, as is established later in Star Trek, they don't really use uh, water showers. They have sonic showers. They just use sound waves to blast dirt uh, particles off of them. Ooh, we should develop those. That sounds great. I know, right? I yeah. don't know. Or or maybe it sounds really painful. Maybe you need earplugs to do it. Maybe, yeah. He's standing too close to Wesley. I wonder what that means. Oh, it was Jordy because he was drunk and he was standing like two inches away from Wesley's face. And I was like, please back away from the boy. <laughs> like He was standing way too close. You're going like, to see a lot of that in the show. That's not just because Jordy is drunk and has to pass it on to somebody else. But because it's a four by three TV show, oftentimes oh. to get everyone in frame, they are going to stand uncomfortably close to each other. Yeah, I was like, what in the heck is going on? And we can all agree, right, that that was probably and no offense to Will, but that was some of Wesley's worst acting. Like when he was acting all manic and stuff, it was this like- is the episode that made people hate Wesley Crusher. Yeah, it was it wasn't good acting. Like, it didn't feel like he was honestly drunk or manic, either one, whatever word you want to use, you mm-hmm. know? Uh, he was like 15. He didn't know. That's true. Yeah. How yeah, would he know about being drunk at that age? But I just, I thought, man, this is sucky because he, I really like Wesley. I, I didn't even know that fans didn't like him until recently. I learned that, I think, from you. You told mm-hmm. me that people didn't really like Wesley or take to him too well. And I was like, that's weird because, you know, I, I really like Wesley in the few episodes that I've seen. But this acting in this one was not very good. Yeah, um, this episode isn't really, uh, it's not the acting that made people hate uh, uh, Wesley Crusher. It's more the, the it, this started the trend of Wesley uh, saving the day. 
Ah, uh, yeah. It was like and the annoying wonderkind who saves the day. I can see that being annoying after a while, but he's just, I mean, somebody's got to save the day, right? Like, I mean, I don't know. Mm-hmm. The, um, the Picard crusher flirting in this episode. Oh my God. So I have taken to calling them after that episode in my head, Giles and mom. <laughs> <laughs> because it reminds me of Giles and Mrs. Summers from Buffy in the candy episode. Do you know what I'm talking about? I, yes, where all the adults become teenagers. Yes, because they're like selling candy for band was enchanted by Giles's old nemesis from college or whatever. Yes. And then mo- mom and mom and Giles end up making out in front of Buffy. That's what I got total Giles and mom energy off of Becoming and Beverly. <laughs> My favorite bit of that interaction is when, because there's a couple different flirtation moments where he like, there's one where he goes into the office and he's just like, Beverly, and then she goes, well, Jean-Luc, and he's like, you will call me Captain, and she's like, well, then you will call me Doctor. That was cute, but my favorite one, she goes onto the bridge, she's like, can I see you in the ready room? It's a personal matter. I mean, it's an urgent one. And then they go in, and she gets really close. And at some point, right at, at like Picard's saying a sentence, and then he goes, <laughs> and you can only see them from like the chest up, and it's very obvious she had just grabbed his junk. <laughs> so I did not actually catch that. I missed it. But my favorite one was they're they're on the bridge, and he waves like awkwardly little, with his fingers so at her, cute. and she waves back. I know, it's so cute, so cute. Um. Their flirting was hilarious. I couldn't get over it. They have really good chemistry. They do. Um, oh, I loved when he came into the room and had a literal skip in his step, too. Picard did. Yes. He like comes in a room and he does a little hop. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, perfect. You keep doing that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting, too, because um, behind the scenes stuff, apparently Patrick Stewart was kind of hard to get along with in the first season um he he felt that the the cast were not being professional enough he's like no we have to take this seriously this is acting and everyone's like patrick lighten up we're here for long days let's have fun with it and i guess they got to him and uh now he's just a giant goofball of a person um but it's interesting to see that even in this episode where obviously behind the scenes he was still kind of that stiff british dude uh, that he had it in him to be this silly. <laughs> yeah, and I thought it worked really well because it, he had been so uptight or whatever to see him being kind of like with the, the little wave and the skip and everything. I thought it was a good, I thought it was good. I thought it was good for us to see so early on in the show too. Um, so can we talk about computers and how they work and why 2001 and apparently the next generation think that computer chips slide into acrylic holes and that's how computers work? It's very easy to film that way. I'm sure it is. That's exactly how he disconnects Hal in 2001 as he pulls little things out of slots. Um, and and then, all you have to do is backlight it and then uh, have like, yeah, little acrylic things that light can shine through. And it it's very <laughs> visually interesting. Um, I don't think that I would design a computer in such a way that somebody can just go in and start pulling out chips yeah. without without pulling off a panel, at least. At least, yeah. 
at least in 2001, he had to like go into where the chips could go into the little acrylic slots. But I was like, I, I asked my husband who was watching it in the same room as me. I was like, it seems to me that it's a clear nod to 2001. He's like, everything is a nod to 2001 to you, though. I was like, yeah, I know. I feel like I need to watch 2001 because the last time I saw it, I was seven. So I have no recollection of anything other than the monkeys beating each other to death. Yeah, I love that movie. Don't get me started. We'll spend two hours on 2001. Uh, Deanna calls him Bill. And I have never heard anyone refer to Riker as Bill. And I was just, I was laughing. I couldn't stop laughing. But it she's is the like, Bill. only time. It is the only time he has ever called Bill. I think they wanted to try that, and then they heard it, and they were like, no. No, oh, no, no. I wrote in no. big capital letters in my notes, Bill. <laughs> like, <laughs> I felt like I was Captain Holt heard, hearing the word bone. I was like, Bill? <laughs> like, Bill? <laughs> it threw me off hard. I was like, what in the heck? And I didn't even catch it the first time I watched it. But it was weird. Um, So to talk about... I. I wondered if that was to write in some familiarity between the characters, though, because I've never I heard assume anybody so. else call Riker Bill. So just to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, no, he's they decided Will sounds better. So that's what they go with going forward. That's um, good because it does sound better. <laughs> one thing I noticed in the episode is that even though Will gets infected at some point, he like never exhibits any symptoms. Even at the end, when he like feels himself sweating, he's like, "No, I can't afford to get this." We never see him actually. He has the teeniest, tiniest bit of despair. He's sitting there with his head kind of on his hand right at the end when Picard comes in with the little gut thing that they, the little syringe or whatever, and he's got his head. So he seems like he's the depressed drunk or whatnot. But I thought it was really, really smart of them. Not to lean into the sex stuff with Riker because he already exudes sex when he's sober. So I didn't think we needed to like touch it on this episode. And I thought right. it was actually super smart because he's as I not didn't, sexually repressed. He's not because when he the he when they all get drunk, the sex stuff comes out because they are. But he already follows his instincts and sleeps with whomever he wants to. You can just tell, and so he doesn't have that. He just kind of gets the "woe is me, everything is bad" kind of reaction to it. When uh, they're trying to break in past, or they're trying to cut the power so that they can get into the room that Wesley's got them blocked out of, yeah. do you notice that he? Asks for a sonic driver. Yes. Yes, I did. Because I wrote in my notes. We've all seen Doctor Who. <laughs> I had it in my notes, too. That's why I was like, did you catch the sonic driver the Riker uses? Is and what it had I wrote to down. be your reference, right? Because the absolutely. sonic screwdriver has existed in Doctor Who forever. So it has to be a reference. It absolutely has to be a reference. Yes. I, you know, like I said, I'm all about fan service. Because I was excited that some of the screens were touch screens. It, uh-huh. Because one of the things that bothered me earlier on in the episode, I think when they were looking through the records about the other ships named Enterprise, um, everything was like green and black, like it was DOS, right? Like just I and noticed it really, that, and it bothers me because like one of the things we do as humans is we make our, when we do future technology is we take whatever is the most advanced at this time and try to tweak it to be just slightly more futuristic. 
so I was surprised when I saw, I think once they get the door open and they're resetting everything and Wesley runs over and is like, oh, I could do this and I could turn it into a repulsor beam instead of a tractor beam. There's a, he's actually like touching the screen and it's doing things. Mm-hmm. And I was surprised by that because at that point in history, we didn't have a lot of touch screens yet. Yeah, touchscreen is the the way forward in Star Trek. Um, I think the reason when Data is going through the records that it's just green and black is because that was an animated screen. So they probably used a real computer screen to film it on, and it was the mm. mid '80s. So that yeah. was probably all that they could have done with it. Um, whereas when uh, um, when Wesley's touching stuff, the screen isn't animated. It's just like um, uh, a a a, a, a static yeah, it's just yeah. a backlit plastic sheet. And uh, so th- then they just add in the beeps and boops as he touches things in post. Yeah, which I thought was cool because one of the things that I love about sci-fi, like even older stuff like Philip K. Dick and um, like when I was reading the novelization of 2001 by Arthur C. Clarke is the way that so many things get predicted. You know, so much future tech gets predicted by sci-fi is one of the things I love about sci-fi. It's so interesting, you know. Mm-hmm. So this is the one of the last lines of the episode, and it really struck, struck, struck me as hilarious. But I believe Jean-Luc said it. It says, we shall end up as a fine crew if we avoid temptation. I have that <laughs> written down, too. And I said, it feels <laughs> like, uh, like a Saturday morning G.I. Joe, and knowing is half the battle. I know, but it also felt tongue-in-cheek like, yeah, that's never going to happen in a million years. <laughs> <laughs> um. I I'll, there was actually I I think kind of a a lot of the eighties uh, anti drug abuse messaging in it because when Picard is explaining to Wesley that uh, that Wesley is basically drunk I was just like did Nancy Reagan write this part of the script <laughs> it feels like he's telling Wesley just say no I know yeah I know and there's a point where and I cannot remember if he was intoxicated yet or not where he's basically mansplaining something he turns around and he like Troy says something and then and then Picard explains it again essentially and then Troy goes yes Yes, I suppose it's more like being intoxicated or something. And I was like, what weird writing? And I, but I think it was all due. I think the writing was all to be like, oh, because they're already intoxicated, even though they don't realize it. Because normally, John Luke doesn't strike me as like a mansplainy kind of dude, you know? Yeah, um, there's actually, uh, we'll, we'll see it a little bit in the uh, later in the first season. There are a couple moments where Picard does kind of lean into the uh, um, the toxic bravado. It, it seems to be dropped, but there's there's a there's an episode I noticed later in the season where Picard's like, "Oh, somebody should face their death awake like a man," and then uh, Doctor Crush is like, "Yes, uh, that does sound like something a man would say." <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, oh, and, and nomination for worst line of the entire episode is, "But if, if you prick me, do I not leak?" <laughs> that was that. Uh, that line made me go, "Oh no!" no. It was very well. He's he's quoting Shakespeare. Um, he is. I know. I know. But, but it, it was very cute, I think. Cute and a little bit cringy. I got to, for me, it was a little bit cringy. Now, the most enduring thing from this episode is the Tasha data relationship, because that actually mm-hmm. comes into play later in the show. 
uh, in before Varium. she dies, because I know that's coming. <laughs> Even after she dies, in very important ways. I love, at the end, when Tasha goes onto the bridge, doing the walk of shame, walks up to Data and says, it never happened. <laughs> and Data's just like, okay. <laughs> okay, never happened. Got it. He's like, All right, got it. <laughs> and he didn't have to tell us 20 different words for it either. He just got it. I thought that was interesting, mm-hmm. almost like an evolution of his character, you know? Um, my my one takeaway is that I was very disappointed that Mom and Giles did not, you know, do the do or even uh-huh. really anything interesting because I, I kept waiting for it to happen because that seemed to be the setup. But maybe they just didn't want those two since they have to work so closely together to have to have that awkwardness or whatever. Yeah, I imagine if they had done that that early on, it would have um, destroyed a lot of the, the tension that they wanted to build over the series because. Right. It very much seems like that she was written as his love interest. And if they have sex in the second episode, uh, well, like we've we've all seen Smallville. It took uh, Clark and Lana like five seasons to have sex. So <laughs> let's talk about Code of Honor. This one was written by Catherine Powers and Michael Barron and directed by Russ Mayberry and Liz Landau. But apparently Les was uncredited. A mission of mercy is jeopardized when a planetary ruler decides he wants an Enterprise officer as his wife. I mean, I guess that's the plot. (laughs) Yeah, let's talk about that uncredited director there, because this is probably the main thing that we're going to talk about in this episode, is this is a really racist episode. Yeah, yeah, 100%. (laughs) And the blame for that is entirely on Russ Mayberry, the credited director. They fired him halfway through. The script never called these aliens African. There was like a reference to, I think, two of the guards were supposed to be African. But other than that, it was just, they were just written as an alien culture. The director, Russ Mayberry, was like, oh, it's Space Africa. He just cast a bunch of black people to do it and was just like, we're, let's, let's just make this really, really, really racist. And so they fired him halfway through. So racist. I, it's so uncomfortable to watch, and I've watched it twice now. <laughs> but it's so racist. Like I don't. I don't know. It's like um, Wakanda, but now with more racism or whatever. Like they could have done it in such a good way. Like, but they didn't. It was. I don't know. I just my impression of this episode, since this is where I'm supposed to get my impression or whatnot, is. I couldn't stand it. I was so frustrated by the fact that if they had just written these guys as like maybe skeevy old white guys or something, it would have been a much more interesting episode. But not only do you have the references to Africa, you have that reference to the um, the coup. Counting coup. Counting coup that also feels kind of racist. Like, you know... In that, like, well, they're just a savage race, so they're doing this thing that, you know, because I hate the word savage in any sort of reference to Native Americans or whatnot, um, because they were defending themselves. So it felt like another racist thing to throw that in there, too. But then I looked up what a counting coup is, and it, it's a real thing, and mm-hmm. it's really not all that racist. Um but for some reason, because it was in the context of this episode that just rang so racist. This isn't about the racism part, but it is about counting coup. I love how offended Picard gets when Data, when he says counting coup, he's like, oh, that's from an obscure language called French. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I forgot about it. I forgot about they, that part. Yeah. <laughs> they play up Picard's Frenchness a lot more in early seasons. Um, I think actually they 
when they were filming Encounter at Farpoint, they asked him to try a French accent for like one take, and they're like, nope, 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 you're not doing that. <laughs> but there's like there was like an episode where he goes merde when something doesn't work, and he's uh, no, they they just they play up a lot of the French pride, and for him to be offended that 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 David yeah. would call French an obscure language is is very cute. It was very funny. Yeah, that is good. So, I mean, I don't know. I, my my impressions of the episode are they were trying to do something that just did not work. Like, and it just comes off super racist. I also thought that there was a bunch of parts of scenes to me that felt like, what warehouse are they recording this episode in? <laughs> like, <laughs> it felt like the most, like, cheaply made of the four that I've seen so far. In the cargo bay, when the Lagonians beam over, that little uh, X-Men logo that they beam on. Yes, yes. I think I, I mentioned it to you in, uh, in, in in Messenger beforehand, but it just looks like it's cardboard or, or construction paper. That construction they just cut paper, it. like some second graders made it. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I thought was really funny is early on when the Lagonians are asking about the holodeck, and Picard is like, oh, it's useful for things other than combat. Maybe Riker and Troy can show you. And obviously, Picard isn't thinking that, but I'm thinking that, and we right. all are thinking that. We're all thinking it, yeah. <laughs> then uh, they're like, no, 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 let's have Tasha go to the holodeck. Because obviously, they all have a, a massive boner for Tasha, but right. because they're a very uh, patriarchal society, they're intrigued that a woman would have this kind of commanding presence and, and uh, uh, position where she is a warrior. Yeah, and that part could have been okay if it wasn't so steeped in the already, like, their racism. Like, so that it ends up coming off as kind of like a woman, in, you know, <gasps> you know, and I was like, okay, yeah, whatever. Because their women are obviously warriors too. So it was weird to me that he acted like so, because remember how when she fights, oh no, what was her name? Yorena? Yorena? Uh-huh. Um, she She's a very well- like conditioned soldier or combatant, whatever word you want to use. So clearly she's been physically, well, I mean, that's the implication, but when they do that far shot of the actress in like the little cage doing her like training montage, she looks really bad. Like she doesn't know what she's doing, but the implication is that she's supposed to be this great and mighty warrior that can take down Tasha in in battle. Right. So it's weird that the whole premise of the episode is I must take this woman as my wife because I'm so impressed with her ability to fight when all the women also train to fight on their planet, you know? Yeah, um, I think the central premise of the episode is that codes of honor are stupid. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the last lines of the episode is, you lost everything. I have my honor. What a waste. He had talked about how his code of honor protects him like a cloak, but he was holding to his code of honor and he got completely screwed over. Um, and the way that he got screwed over, I want to really address because it's really stupid. And it's like, oh, yeah, Yurina died. Like, death uh-huh. isn't, like, a one specific event. Like, we have redefined the point at which someone is considered dead as medical technology progresses. So, right. like, okay, maybe her heart stopped, and maybe uh, th- her brain had started to shut down, and they were able to repair that damage because of advanced medical technology. But if you can bring somebody back to life, then they weren't dead. 
I know. I know. I was on his, I, as much as I didn't want to be on his side, I was on his side there. <laughs> because, because death is death. Not, you know, that moment when your heart stops and then you come back. To me, death is you're gone forever and you're not coming back. So I was kind of on, I'm kind of, was kind of on the dude's side with that one. You know? Yeah. It, it felt like a very, like, technical legalistic way of, like, I don't know. It, it doesn't feel satisfying to me. It's like when people are like, oh, yeah, I've died before. Like, no, you didn't die before because you're alive. So that means you didn't die. How about, well, this is a this is an episode that brings up my moral and ethical issues with Deanna a little bit. Because she kind of manipulates Tasha a little bit. And Tasha says, I'm your friend, Deanna. How could you do that to me? And I was like, yeah, but she does it to everybody. You know, like she's constantly kind of like manipulating them or knowing what they're feeling. So she's able to manipulate their feelings into like what she wants them to be. And it bothers me like when she manipulates Tasha into seeing her point of view because she's able to like read what Tasha's feeling and then respond to it. It kind of just I don't know. It brought up this is where my moral and ethical issues with um, Deanna just started going off the rails because I was like, should she really be able to like feel people's feelings and just announce them to the whole room. Yeah, there are ethical issues with uh, um, telepathic species that I feel like Star Trek often doesn't address. Um, Babylon 5, I think, has done a great job in addressing those. Have you ever seen that show? I have not. I've heard good things about it, though. There are telepaths in that show that have, they have, like, a strict ethical code about uh, when they are allowed to read somebody. Now, there's surface thoughts that you're always going to hear, but, like, Basically, telepaths go through years of training to block stuff out, and they won't probe somebody without consent or without a warrant. Um, so it, it feels like Babylon 5 did a lot better job of going into the ethics of a species that could read people's minds. Star Trek just is like, yeah, they read minds. Yeah, and it's kind of like the Jedi mind trick in Star Wars. Like, it's for some reason, people are 100% okay with it when a Jedi does it, but when somebody who's not a Jedi does it, all of a sudden it's bad and awful and terrible, and how dare they? But when the Jedi do it, we all forgive it or whatever because they're Jedi. And they're using it for the better good, but it's only the better good by their opinion, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I feel like this is the kind of thing that we as humans, since we don't really have telepathic powers, haven't spent too much time thinking about. But if you're going to introduce a species that does have those, I'd like to see some more like, I mean, there is a lot of like, quote unquote, racism toward Deanna. Um, like people are like, oh, I won't be around a Betazoid or whatever. And she usually excuses it, excuses it, at least in the few episodes I've seen is, but I'm only half or whatever. Right. So it's, it's, it's interesting. And I just, but I kept wondering that whole episode and like, is it ethical that she's constantly reading people's thoughts and feelings? I also had a different issue with that scene and I had it in my notes. You could tell a woman didn't write this episode, but one of the writers was a woman. But I know I was surprised by that when I read that. Yeah. When she gets Tasha to admit that she felt attractive because she was kidnapped. Oh, I know. I rolled my eyes so hard. <laughs> and like, no, especially Tasha. Tasha's story, Tasha has one of the most effed up backstories of any Star Trek character. She grew up on a failed colony where there were roving rape gangs. Right, and she brought that up last episode. So we just learned that last episode. So, no, she wouldn't feel attractive just because somebody was trying to assault her. Because she's lived that her entire life. 
And that's not how you feel. No, it's not how you feel when you're sexually assaulted and when you're kidnapped against your will. Um, there's, I don't, I don't know what I'm referencing here, but I was mad because Deanna basically was making it out like she's got it the worst or something, and I was like, no, the lady who was kidnapped against her will and potentially facing being raped by some guy who's the leader of the planet because she want he wants to make her his wife which is the implication i want to make her his mm -hmm. wife is i'm going to rape this woman she has it the worst she has and she and everybody needs to shut the f up and let her decide if she wants to like fight the guy or the the wife or whatever like i just her agency was completely stripped away and other people just kept talking for her the whole episode so you're right i was pretty floored when i saw it was half written by a woman as well the main issues with the story were in the casting but that doesn't excuse the script itself there are some weird sexist uh undertones in there yeah there is it's kind of just a weird episode and i mean it's not like oh let's just cancel the show and let's just you know write the whole show off but it's a weird episode it just is you know um, and they fired that director and they said, you will never work in this town again. They were that incensed at, at what he was doing. So they they I, I, they definitely were like, e even if there was some stuff behind the scenes that wasn't his fault, it definitely seemed like he they're like, nope, this is the guy that did it. So they blamed it on him. Yeah, because I was trying to as I watched it the second time to rewrite and take or to rewatch and take notes and stuff so we could talk about it. The thing I took away was even without the racism of the people being cast as African, you know, um, there's still a lot of problems with this episode in general. Um, the other thing that and this is more of a joke than anything but I work in a school and it is the most disruptive thing in the whole world when people all call over the intercom for school. Like everybody has to stop and listen to what they're saying. There is no way on a ship that large they would all call everybody that often. <laughs> and it, it bothers me. <laughs> well, And then I was going to ask if they only call into certain areas. Like let's say they're trying to find crusher would they call maybe to her office her bedroom and the bridge or do they just really ring it throughout the entire enterprise every time they want to talk to somebody uh the ship's computer is intelligent and it's able to uh understand what people are saying when they like you know are, are hailing out and mm -hmm. so it's able to direct it correctly so like if you say um picards to crusher it isn't going to broadcast that to the ship. It's going to find where Crusher is and beep her. So if he says, you know, Crusher to sick bay, like it only goes to where Crusher is because the computer yeah. knows that. Okay, yeah. that's good because it was they do it so much. And I was like, it's so disrupting at like my work when they do it that I just can't see them doing it that often. No, it's you know? not an all call. It is. It, it's a very directed thing. Here's another question that I have just as a casual viewer. They mentioned the prime directive a lot, but don't actually say what it is. I know what it is kind of from having like pieced together Star Trek from here and there. But mm -hmm. if I had never seen Star Trek before, I would be kind of annoyed that I didn't that they keep mentioning the prime directive, but not actually what it is. Um, I didn't pick that up just because I I, I instinctively know what the prime directive is. But yeah, uh, right. the prime directive is the directive of non-interference with other cultures. Uh, so obviously, even if they find something that a culture is doing abhorrent, if it is entirely within their culture, if it's not an interspecies conflict their hands off so it's kind of like being lawful in D D or whatever you go by the laws of the place that you're in mm -hmm. okay interesting 
the Prime Directive is one of the bigger conflict um, uh, drivers in Star Trek because there's a lot of times where it feels like the moral thing to do comes in conflict with the Prime Directive. And Mm -hmm. you'll never see a show in which they hold to the Prime Directive completely. It's always about, okay, well, we have to, you know, uh, examine it in this situation. You have a lot of episodes where the the prime con- uh, the prime directive is the central conflict of the episode, uh, and it kind of it, it hamstrings them here because they they have the technology they could just beam the vaccines, but for one that would be stealing because yeah. they haven't been given them, and for two that would violate their cultural norms. It's like no no no, we want we're going to give it to you, but in this way and they're like well we kind of have to play along because it is the prime directive right yeah so it's interesting because i think they just assume that we're supposed to know what the prime directive is but like they mentioned it in this episode and i was like i think that's like not to screw up cultures like technologically i and i think i thought it was more like when you time travel you can't tell people in the past about cell phones or whatever so your explanation of it makes a little bit more sense and uh yeah it's it is a general rule of non-interference in other cultures and it is far more strict when it comes to pre-warp civilizations any civilization that is pre-warp they don't want themselves to be known about at all okay Um, and so like there are episodes where if they are examining a pre-warp culture and like if they beam down they will disguise themselves as the locals so that nobody knows that it's them and they will try their best to not inter- interfere with uh with the goings on of their development at all. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. And I may have seen that in an episode that I've seen randomly or in one of the movies or I did see a lot of Voyager too. So I maybe that's why that was what was specifically in my head was not messing with the technology. But it's kind of weird that this is the whole thing, like the Prime Directive is so important, but they don't bother to tell you what it is. So if you've just sat down to watch The Next Generation for the first time, you're four episodes in, you still don't know what the Prime Directive is. Yeah, um, it is good to know what it is. Yeah, it is. It's the now I know. Um, I think that's really it. I mean... I didn't like this episode. It's my least favorite so far. <laughs> um, I thought it was interesting character development for Yar. Um, just because she did say, you know, basically shut up and let me do this fight. Because if I can get this vaccine, we can help a bunch of people or whatever. That was the only agency she really seemed to have the whole episode. And I was glad that they let her have it, but it seemed like really good development for her. Um, and But that was, like to me, one of the only redeeming episodes, or qualities of the episode. There was one more redeeming quality of that episode, though. Which is? When they beam down to the planet, and the guards bring out Yar, and one of the guards has just a massive black eye. <laughs> I didn't catch that, but that is great. That is great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, that's good for her character. I love it. That's <laughs> it gives a little bit more, you know, to the episode. But man, I'm glad I'll never have to watch that one again. So thanks for joining us today. I'm Ari. And I'm Gayfesh. And until next time, live long and prosper. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Twitter at Rest Both Worlds. Join our Patreon at patreon.com slash worlds for bonus content and hear your name at the end of each episode.